today, Daniel chapter 2, just getting going with our series here. This is a page 737, if you're using the Bibles here at the church, Daniel chapter 2. It will be projected, uh, but it won't stay up the whole time, so you'll still might want to open that Bible, open your phone, get to the text so you can look at it as we uh, discuss it. We, uh, this chapter, chapter 2 of Daniel, is a whole unit, but uh, I wanted to take it in, in two weeks to really uh, think it through carefully, so we're all going to be just, just looking through verse 23 today, verses 1 to 23 of chapter 2 of the book of Daniel. Let's begin with prayer. Oh, great God, please be with us this morning. Lord, come with your wisdom and your knowledge and give us understanding as we look into your word. We want to worship you, but we are terribly dragged down by the cares, the anxieties of the world, our lives, and we ask for comfort. Through Jesus, who died for us, who now lives to intercede for us, give us rest this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king... Tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation." The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. 
Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. God's word. So Jesus told a story in Matthew 7 about a house that was built on the rock. It stands through rain, through storm, and a house built on sand that falls. Uh, the difference is straightforward. It's all about the foundations, right? You've got one built on rock, you've got one built on sand. And Jesus tells us that the one built on rock was built by someone who has God's words and has acted upon them, who does them. Whereas the person who built the sand house either has no divine words or has not listened to them. And I'm reminded by this story of what we just read in verse 11 of our text. King Nebuchadnezzar, only the gods can tell you what you want. You need a divine word. But they don't dwell with flesh. They don't care about us humans. This is where Nebuchadnezzar lives as we look here at Daniel chapter 2. He stands in one of the, the most glorious and powerful houses of the known world, Babylon the Great, the Magnificent. But it is built on sand. And so we begin with my first point, the crumbling house of worldly power, the crumbling house of worldly power. Nebuchadnezzar, he's young, he is powerful, but he is troubled. Here in the third year of his reign, I know it says second, but that's because Babylonians didn't usually count the first year of a king's reign, so technically it's his third year, and in this year he has dreams. He has a bad dream. And this challenge in his life reveals a man full of insecurity and hostility. Here's a guy with more power and wealth than anybody, but he can't get a good night's sleep. 
He has a whole team of people. Verse 2, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, Chaldeans. They've all been specially trained, all experts in their fields. The, the cream of the world's crop drawn from all the nations that Babylon has conquered. All there to help Nebuchadnezzar feel like he's in control. Dreams, you see, in that day uh, were viewed as the shadow of the future falling back upon the present. So if you could discern the shape of that shadow, you could potentially prepare for what might happen in the future. You could have some sort of control over things that have not yet happened. Now you can see why that this would, this would be big business for kings back in those days. Why Nebuchadnezzar would want such a great retinue of guys dedicated to this work. To think about Wall Street in our own world, all trying to predict the future and adjust accordingly. But Nebuchadnezzar is so insecure that one commentator refers to him as a lost child in the darkness. We can see his insecurity and in how he deals with his advisors. He doesn't just insist that they tell him uh, what his dream means. He wants them to tell him his dream as well. Why? Verse 9, you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know you can show me its interpretation. He's accusing them of some sort of conspiracy. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words. And he doesn't believe in their abilities or trust them. Show me the dream, and then, then maybe I'll believe your interpretation. And when they say, only the gods can do that, he flies into a rage. This is a guy who is insecure, who is paranoid, who trusts no one, who is alone. What a potent picture of the world we live in. Trust is scarce these days. Who believes in truth and objectivity anymore? And and what about experts, right? You got yours, I got mine. I'll dump mine and find others if they say something I don't like. It's a world built on sand, the crumbling house of worldly power. Maybe you've been tempted to place serious hope in certain political processes or figures or to follow a certain influencer or philosopher or, or pastor. Or embrace a social movement only to find yourself frustrated when things don't work out the way you thought. The person or the process fails you. They just, they just don't understand things the way you do. But careful, the next step is hostility. Isn't that what we see with Nebuchadnezzar threatening to rip his advisor's arms and legs off, condemning the entire class of wise men to death? You wouldn't make threats like that, of course, because you don't have power like Nebuchadnezzar, and we live in a different world, but the same rage can flow through you when you begin to trust in the house of worldly power and find yourself in a terribly insecure place. Sinclair Ferguson writes of Nebuchadnezzar, he is not at peace with the world because he is not at peace with himself. Zooming out 
from Nebuchadnezzar. What do we see in Babylon as a whole? It's a place of instability and brutality, right? We already got some hints of this in chapter 1. The, the steward who served Daniel and his friends was terrified he might get his head chopped off if, just if Daniel and his friends didn't look as healthy as the other recruits. And we get more of a feel for the, the environment of Babylon in this chapter. There's this stench of fear and helplessness in this place. You've got a bizarre, irrational king who revolves between, you know, promising people unimaginable wealth and horrific death. He, he makes impossible requests and doesn't care. And people will die because they can't do the impossible. And don't miss that in verse 11... The wisest men of Babylon recognize their system doesn't work. No one can show the king what he wants, except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. What are they saying? Our religious, scientific community cannot do what you are asking. Only the gods can, but they don't care about us people. They have no sure word to offer Nebuchadnezzar. They have no true connection with God. They cannot help him with his insecurity. All they've got is sand. And so they will live with his hostility. Worldly powers can't help you with your insecurity. And there is no reason to be impressed by their power. They know far less than they pretend to know. And beneath the glitz, the glamour, the beauty is the stench of fear, uncertainty, and meaninglessness. Now, this week I heard a detective describe the day he walked into Kermit Gosnell's abortion clinic in Philadelphia. The stench of rotting baby body parts clogging the sewer system. Bloodstains, buckets of bleach with more murdered children, some of them born alive. But you know, you know the idols that demand these kinds of sacrifices. It's that glorified idea promoted by so much of our television, our books, of, of no strings attached, consequence-free sex. Right? It's that false image of the powerful, independent woman with a perfect body. It's the men too lazy to change their lifestyle and become a father who pressured wives and girlfriends to go to the clinic. Behind these luxurious, self-centered images, the stench of death floats. And I've chosen just one pungent example from our culture. Do not envy the power and the beauty of Babylon. Weep for them. Maybe like Daniel and his friends, even find a way to serve them. Dare to sing the songs of Jerusalem for them, songs of mercy and of grace through Christ. For such were some of you. And but for Jesus so also would you go. We are distinct from the world, but we are not to be absent. Not yet. 
When we find ourselves in the insecurity and hostility of Nebuchadnezzar, when we find ourselves living in the hopelessness of Babylon, how do we get out? What is the doorway out of the crumbling house of worldly power? Daniel and his friends show us the doorway is prayer. So my second point, the doorway of prayer. I wonder if any of you have been in this position before, where you go to a foreign country, you have a debit card, but you're not a credit card person, and you didn't bring a nice crisp stack of 20s like your dad told you to, but you do have that debit card, so you take it, you put it into the ATM machine. You don't even know what all the words say because it's in a different language. Your card disappears into the machine. You feel the tension. Will it come back out? Will the machine shred it? Punch a hole through it? Eat it? Or just even pretend like you, you never even put it in there in the first place? Well, what if you put it in there and the screen just goes back to normal? Like you never put it in at all. You have lost total control of your debit card. It is out of your hands, out of sight. In this one way, this is exactly what it is to walk through the doorway of prayer. When you go to God in prayer, the simple fact that you are not in control comes into distinct focus. Of course, you weren't in control anyways. You were just pretending to be in control. But when you pray, and I mean really pray, you give up the pretense. Nebuchadnezzar pretends he's in control by ripping people's arms and legs off. Maybe the Lord will continue to let him do that for a time. Maybe he won't. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar will suddenly think he's a cow and go eat grass. If you're confused, peek ahead. Chapter 4, verse 33. Prayer transitions us from dependence on self to dependence on God. Prayer moves us from dependence on the crumbling powers of the world to the one who rules the world. It's an act of allegiance. Put another way, it's an act of rebellion against self and the devil. It turns us away from building on the foundation of sand to building on rock. This doesn't always feel comfortable. It's a place of obvious weakness. People sometimes laugh at those who pray. The debit card is gone, and you're just waiting. Why is it uncomfortable? Because we want to be God. We want to be able to control things. We want to enforce our own will on events around us. I will make my child stop. I will force this person to listen and agree. We want to be God. That's what Nebuchadnezzar wants. Why do you think he flies into a rage when his wise men tell him, only God can do what you want? The atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche wrote, if there is a God, how can I bear to not be that God? You either live in the envy and rage of Nietzsche and Nebuchadnezzar, or you, you just give up and live in utter doubt, or you let go of the debit card, and you step through the doorway of prayer. You can see the dependence of Daniel and his friends here and what they pray for. It's very simple. Notice verse 18. They seek mercy. 
from the God of heaven. They're not demanding anything. They're not trying to force their will on God. In fact, by pleading for mercy, they recognize that God could justly destroy them in this way. They demand nothing, but they ask for mercy. Notice also what they don't do. They don't rush around grabbing their scrolls. They're smart guys. They're the best of the best. They just graduated from the Ivy League school of the Babylonian wise men. They could go that route. They don't. Maybe that's a gentle rebuke for some of us. What do you do when problems arise? What do you prioritize if you just have a little bit of time before that stressful meeting? The Apostle Paul actually develops some of the theology we see in Daniel's story in his own life in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. He refers to this time when he and Timothy were experiencing some terrible affliction. We don't, we don't know what. He says it was so bad that he actually despaired of life itself. That's pretty bad. He says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us, through the prayers of many. What do we see here? Trouble in Paul's life moved him from self-reliance, I can do it, to God-reliance. And what was the doorway? The prayer of God's people. When trouble comes, it is always the right move to gather with other believers like Daniel and his friends and pray. But we turn finally to our third point, the firm house of God's power. It is the firm house of God's power that Daniel witnesses to in verses 20 to 23. This is why Daniel, the exile, the one who should be living in doubt and fear, can sleep soundly at night. And Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, cannot. And the writer of this account, he is so artistic here. He's, he's actually reinforcing his theological point with his literary structure. I know that sounds kind of highfalutin. Just look at the text here with me. Uh, you need to see this, okay? The story, if you look beginning at verse 13, the story is sort of just rushing forward, okay? It's just going. We, we're, we got the basic details necessary to know what happened, but but not much more. It's a fairly spare narrative. So Ariok goes out to, to kill people. Daniel asks him, what's up? Uh, we're not told how they know each other. We, we're not told who Ariok is. We're not told any of their conversation, really. Daniel gets a meeting with this king. We don't get any details about that, how he managed that. Uh, Daniel goes and tells his friends. We don't know what he said. 
uh, he tells him to seek mercy. Pretty, pretty spare. Again, we're not given any of the details of his prayers. And then the mystery is revealed to Daniel. Again, we don't know the mystery. It's just revealed. The story is kind of just rushing forward from detail to detail as if the writer is impatient to tell us what's going to happen next. But then we realize it's not the story he's impatient to get to. It is Daniel's praise. What do we do when we get our solution? We rush off to fix the problem. That's not what Daniel does. Daniel stops to praise and thank God. Shouldn't our lives stop for praise? What is the theology the writer is teaching with this literary structure? This is the most important thing. Daniel's story, the story of his friends, what will happen to all the other wise men, whether Nebuchadnezzar will see the light, your story, not the most important thing. God's glory, his praise, that is the most important thing. It is the goal of this story and all our stories. Notice this section of Scripture, verses 20 to 23, Daniel's prayer here, this is, you might call it, totally unnecessary in terms of the narrative, in terms of the story. You could just jump straight from the middle of verse 19. Uh, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in the middle, in a vision of the night, uh, to verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch to go save people. And you, you wouldn't lose anything of the story if you did that, right? Which is precisely why it is so clear that this is the point of the story. There's no other reason to have it here. And you know what? If I had uh, taken all of chapter 2 for my sermon text, I know what you guys would have been tempted to do. You would have been tempted to walk right past this part of this story, past this prayer, to hear what happened next, right? The big reveal. What is this terrible dream anyway? We still haven't gotten to that. What's the dream? Right? I'm glad that we're able to take two weeks because we are forced to stop where Daniel stops. To delight and to rejoice in the firm house of God's power. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Many people have power, but no wisdom. And others who have wisdom have no power. But God has both. He knows and he acts. And his might and his wisdom are expressed through his control. Verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Right? Authority and wisdom flow from him. Daniel is expressing his dependence and his reliance. This is where wisdom comes from. The firm rock of this world. That's not insecure, hostile Nebuchadnezzar or his weak wise men. They acknowledge their failure. It is God. Verse 22. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. And the light 
dwells with him. He reveals himself to those who have ears to hear. He shows us the nature of humanity, the great purposes he has for this world. Your neighbors wake up each day. They walk out into life with no sense for where this world is headed. Wiped out by an asteroid tomorrow. We're all just a cloud of burnt carbon drifting through the universe. No. God knows what is in the darkness. And the light, the glory, the perfection dwells with him. And then in verse 23, Daniel turns and he makes God his own. Notice how the pronouns change, right? From he, he, he to you, O God of my fathers. To you I give thanks and praise. Why? Because God came to him in the vision of the night and revealed to him the truth that he asked for. Listen, God has come to us as well. We can recognize God's wisdom and power too because it has been revealed to us as well. Daniel received it through a vision of the night, but we have received God's revelation to us through his coming in the flesh. Exactly what all the great intellectuals of Daniel's day claim would never happen. God's dwelling is not with flesh, they said, but they were wrong. Don't you think the Holy Spirit put those words in their mouths just so that generations of Christians could marvel at how God defies the expectations of the world. He did come to dwell with flesh. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Can we not stop and worship? Stop and praise the name of the Lord. To you, O Lord, I give thanks. And praise. Or are we still clinging to the crumbly house of the world's power? Brother, sister, step through the doorway of prayer and rest yourselves upon the rock. Christ, who will be for us and for our children forever a firm house. Let's pray. Father, we come to you because we are needy people. We know our sin. We know our failures. We know our weaknesses, our lack of knowledge and wisdom. But you have revealed to us the truth that though we are helpless in sin, you offer us a Savior, Christ the Lord, who came down 
to be with his people in the flesh. And Lord taught his people and speaks to us now through his word. We pray that we would stop this morning. We would worship. And Lord, that through the grace you give us in Christ, we would rest. We pray these things in Jesus' name.